0: Welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care.
1: amen 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 Amen. I like trees and lights and presents and all that but if Jesus ain't in it it ain't worth it he is indeed the reason for the season and I hope you keep that central as we get closer towards Christmas Good morning, Epiphany. It has been, I think it's been over a year since I was in this pulpit, and I am here by special request, Um, but it's not your special request. It is the special request of God the Father, and when he requests you do something, you better do it. So I am here to bring God's word today, but I need your your prayers as I'm feeling a little tired, but I know the Lord is my strength. Stand with me as we get into the word. We're going to be in Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7. I spend my time mainly in 1 through 4, but we'll pull in the rest of the verses as well, as is our custom. I'll kick you off, and then you all keep going. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. talk to you from the topic of Jesus the priestly king. Jesus the priestly king. Let's pray. Father uh, I am just a man and it is a great task to preach your word uh, to your people. I am reminded of first Peter four eleven that says that the one who speaks should speak as if he speaks the words of God. The one who serves should serve with the strength that God supplies. Lord, as I prepare to speak your word, would you strengthen me? Not so that I might be eloquent or insightful or any of that, but so that your son would be exalted. That your people would see him as he is. And seeing him in his beauty and his glory and his majesty, would their hearts be pricked to love him, delight in him, and to tell others of him. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. A few years ago, I had the honor of doing some counseling for uh, a married couple. Um, it was specifically uh, with regard to how they were relating together on the topic of authority, particularly the husband's authority and how that played itself out in their marriage. And uh, I don't do a lot of counseling, but this was a particular situation I got involved in. And I actually knew this young lady prior to her getting married. And she was a godly young woman. She loved the Lord. They had been through premarital. Uh, she believed that the teachings of Ephesians 5 are about headship and submission and all that. She, she was theologically astute. And... When she got married, she thought that everything would be good, but as she began to interact with her husband, particularly in areas where he was trying to lead her or set vision for their family, she found herself resisting that, pushing up against it, and, and her husband felt disrespected by this, and it caused tension in their marriage, and so they, they sought counseling. And as we talk through some of these things, it, it became clear that the issue wasn't her theology, her understanding of the Bible. Her, the issue wasn't even the way that they were interacting or resolving conflict. It became clear that the issue had started when she was a little girl. Growing up in her home, her father had been a very domineering leader. And so when she brought all of this baggage into her marriage, it began to cause trouble. And as we work through counseling and talk through these issues, it wasn't theology that helped her. It wasn't even tips on how should you talk or how do you show respect. None of that was what really made the difference. In her case, it just took time to get to know her husband. She had to psychologically and emotionally separate this good man that God had given her from the abusive authority that had shaped her mind around what a leader looked like. She had to get to know her man. And as she did that, she began to, to, to begin able to submit to him because she said, this one is, is different than my experience. And so the theology began to take root in her life because she got to know her husband. You might not realize it, but all of us have had some baggage around authority. You may have grown up in a good home. You may have had good leadership in church or at your job. But if you are living in this world, you've seen some abuses of authority. You've seen it in a church. You've seen it in politics. You've seen it in the justice system. Abuses of authority. And so all of us, as the bride of Christ, when we get married to Jesus, we bring some baggage with us. And the answer to our baggage and our issues with authority and leadership and headship is to get to know our man. we got to get to know our king so we can separate him in all his beauty and glory from all the bad examples of leadership, of headship that we've all grown up with. Some of us have been impacted in even greater degrees than others. But to some extent, All of us have been touched by the sinful abuse of authority that is common, common, oh so common. But the answer is to get to know our king. So in these few moments, I want to get us all up on the couch as God the Father counsels us, teaches us about what does my son look like? What does this groom of the bride look like? What does his headship and his kingship over us look like? we got to get to know our king. So Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. I want to give us some context first. This is a psalm of David, and a psalm is simply a song. Israel may have sung this in their times of worship together, but we know from the words of Christ in Matthew, Matthew 22, verses 41 through 45, that this is more than just a song. It's more than something just to sing in the, in the gathering of the saints. That this is actually a prophecy of the coming king. God has given David, hundreds of years before Christ comes on the scene, a, a trailer, a way to see, here's what he's going to look like. And he has preserved this word for his people, so you might know our king. So this is a psalm of David. We often think of David as just a king or maybe just a psalmist, but he was actually a prophet. And in this time, he, he says, this is the declaration of the Lord. Now That's some good news. Because you, you might need to listen a little bit to your boss say something. You might even need to listen to your pastor or your, your father, your mother say something. But when there is a declaration of the Lord, you should perk up a little bit. Because David said, Lord, your words are like silver. Yes. They are pure words. They are good words. And so the declaration of the Lord is precious to us. He says, this is the declaration of the Lord. But what is happening here is that there's like a scene. On the one hand, it says the declaration of the Lord. And in your Bibles, you'll see that's in all caps. That's to say that this is the proper name of God the special name of God that his people call him by. This is Yahweh speaking, the declaration of the Lord. But something interesting is happening as David is observing this conversation. He says, the Lord is over here and he is speaking Yahweh, and I can see that this is Yahweh, but there's another one. And this one, I'm inspired to call him my Lord. Now that's a strange thing. Because in Israel, David was the king and the only lord above the king was yahweh david it was heresy for david to look at anything else and say that's my lord any other god any other man yahweh alone was the true king of israel and so when we see him say here the the, yahweh god himself is speaking to somebody that i have to recognize as my Lord, he is saying in some mysterious way, deity is talking to deity. He might not understand it, but he can recognize it. There's something amazing about this one. that I can't just say he looks like a human being, but I have to say he is my Lord too. There is a conversation happening between God the Father, as the New Testament will reveal to us, and God the Son. And so David says, the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. And when you look closer at the passage, what does God the Father say to God the Son? He says first, sit at my right hand. And this leads me to my first point. If we're going to know our king, we must know that the source of his authority is Yahweh himself. The source of his authority is Yahweh himself. See, in in our culture, we we don't understand this thing right hand. What does that mean? You could sit on my right, my left, front, behind, I don't care. But in their culture, the right hand was not about location. It was a statement about authority. That in the kingdom, whenever the king would sit on his throne, the one to his right was his equal. The one to his right had the ability, the implicit authority, to speak on behalf of the king. It was the place where the crown prince would sit. And you would know that this one has the support and the love and the power of his father. And so when God says, sit at my right hand, he is saying, this one has my authority. He has the the right to speak on my behalf. Those who call me Lord must call him Lord. But that's a strange thing. Because you're talking about God here. Shouldn't it be that if God says to anybody, sit, it should be at my feet? Who can sit next to God? Who can rule with God's authority, God's power, God's strength? How can the Lord, who says that I am one, how can that God give his glory to another? He's revealing here the nature of how the Trinity works. He's saying that, although I am the Lord, the I am that I am, there is another that is also the I am that I am. And David might not understand it, but he can recognize it and see it. And so the the right hand is, it's not about location, it's about authority and power. Now, Hebrews helps us to understand this, because there's, there's a question that this raises. How is it that if this one is also deity, how how can God the Son take commands from another one that's deity? How can his source of authority be somebody else? If he is also God, does he not have inherent authority? Why does he need a source of authority? Hebrews helps us with this, because there's there's a great mystery in the Trinity that we have to look at. Hebrews chapter one, verses two and three. Listen to this, it says, in these last days, He, God, has spoken to us by His Son. God, that is God the Father, has appointed Him, God the Son, heir of all things, and made the universe through Him. Verse three, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful word. In verse two, we see this submission within the Trinity. He says, God has appointed him. He has taken instruction about his role from God the Father. God has made the universe through him. The the Trinity works in this way. Things flow from, from God the Father, through God the Son, and in God the Spirit. And so they work together, even though all have the same essence, the same power, the same being, there is distinction and order within the Trinity. Our God is a God of order. And so when we see here, he says, sit at my right hand. He is not saying that you are lower than me, but there is a distinction of role of authority within the Trinity. But lest you think there is some weakness, he says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact expression of his nature. If I say I am the expression of God's nature, y'all should stone me. To say that is to say, I am God. Everything that God is, I am. And that's why Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh is speaking, but this one is also Yahweh. He will take on himself the I am. All those statements, I am the bread of life, I am the way. Remember the I am. For the Jews, they would have said, this one is claiming to be God. God the Father speaks to God the Son, and and God the Son has as his source of authority God the Father. But he doesn't just say, sit at my right hand. He says, until I make your enemies your footstool. It's good news for us that this one has the source of authority being Yahweh. Why is that good news? Because you, you might, in your experience, have some good leadership. Maybe you like the, the elders here. And you, yeah, y'all are okay. Maybe on your job you got a good boss. Or maybe in your, professor you have, in your school you have a, a good professor that you like. You know what? You can lose all that. Yeah. The pastors here, we can die. Your boss on your job that you like so much and you're counting on for that promotion, you might show up one day and that boss has been let go. That professor you like so much in your class might leave, take another job, or the class ends and it's over. Or maybe you got a favorite politician, loses an election, term of office runs out. You can't count on the authorities on this, on this earth. But this one, his authority is fixed. It is certain, it is determined. There will never come a day When you have to question whether or not Jesus is ruling over you. Because his authority comes from the very source of all authority. The one from whom all things come. And so that's good news. So he says, sit at my right hand. And he he counsels us. He, He lets us know that this is to assure you that this one has authority from the source of all authority. He goes on. He says, until... I make your enemies your footstool. And this leads me to my second point. If you're gonna know our king, we have to know that he will show grace to his enemies, but he will also crush them. He will show grace to his enemies, but he will also crush them. When you see it says here, until I make your enemies your footstool, that's an interesting phrase. Because he's already said that this one is king, but he's saying, I need you to wait a little bit. Now, is he saying that because this king needs some help, he, needs, he just can't quite do it, and so God has to work things out on his behalf? Is that what's going on here? Because all, all leaders face challenges to their authority. But the, the, what's happening here is not that the king has some weakness, or some limitation, or some inability to to enforce his rule. What's happening here is God the Father is saying to God the Son, I'm going to give your enemies a chance to recognize who you are. I could take care of them right now. But I'm going to show them a little grace. I'm going to give them some time to look at you and say, that's the king, and, and bow the knee before they have to be put on their knees. He says, wait just a little bit until I make your enemies your footstool. Because the footstool is coming. The humbling is coming. But there's a time of grace. What are you doing with this time? God doesn't need to give you grace. He says, they are his enemies. They are rebels against the divine state. They are enemies of the universal state that God runs but he gives them grace. Let me give you an example. Abraham Lincoln, I love history. Abraham Lincoln, 1861, elected the president of the United States, took his oath of office, moved into the White House. He's the president. But what happens? Half the country says, no, you're not, and they rebel. And for his entire term of office until the very end, his authority is challenged. And he never quite knows if he's even going to make it. If somebody's going to march on Washington and take over, right? Even though he had the office and the role, there was limitations to his authority. That's not what's going on with Jesus. Because remember Hebrews, what did it say? It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, verse three, and the exact expression of his nature. But look at this sustaining all things by his powerful word. All things means all things. So the enemies themselves are sustained by him. In your mess, in your sin, God is giving you breath with which you used to curse him. In the midst of your rebellion, he's upholding you. He's giving you one more moment to bend the knee and recognize the king but he's still sustaining you. It's not because of his weakness, because of his grace towards you. Romans chapter two helps us so much with this. It says in verse four, it says, do you despise, listen to these words, the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Yeah. God has been kind to your sorry self. Yeah. What are you going to do with the kindness? Yeah. What are you going to do with the restraint? Come on, sir. Are you going to use it just for your own ends? Are you going to say, God has been kind to me that in my mess, he didn't kill me. Yeah. In my mess, he didn't send me to hell. The angels, when they, when they rebelled against them, every single one will suffer for eternity. There are no saved angels. They have a nature like ours. They feel, they think, they can, they can, they can, they can re- relate. And all of them will be condemned. Yeah. God has chosen to show you grace and show you mercy. Yeah. Until I make your enemies your footstool, he shows grace. But don't get it twisted. The footstool is coming.
0: Yeah.
1: The crushing is coming. But what does it mean to be made footstool? What, what, what is he talking about? Because there's a lot of language in here that we just aren't familiar with. See, we, th- we think footstool is something you just rest your foot on just to be comfortable, watching TV or something. In their culture, and still to this day in their Eastern culture, the foot is associated with shame. You might re- remember another example from US history and I think it was December of 2008. Uh, President Bush was giving, a, he was at a press conference and the Iraq war was going on and there was this Iraqi reporter in the room and this reporter took off both his shoes and threw them at President Bush. Now he was sitting on a chair, there was a podium, there was all kinds of stuff. Why did he throw his shoes? Because even to this day, In their culture, feet or shoes are associated with shame. He was saying, shame on you. That's what God is saying here. He's saying, I'm going to make your enemies so low, they will be in the dirt. They will be your footstool. But what does that look like? In verse 5 through 7, we get a picture of what it looks like for, for his enemies to be made his footstool. He says, the Lord is at, listen to the verbs here. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That that last verse is is a picture of conquest. It's of a king who's come in and he's conquered a land and he he gets down by the road and he takes a drink of water. He says, the water of my new land tastes sweet to me it is a conquering language. It says he will heap up corpses, footstool. It's a picture of violence. And you might say, well, th- this, this is confusing to me. How, how could it be that this God who says, I am a God of love, as 1 John 4, 8 says, how, how can he kill people? How can he heap up Corpses. How can he crush leaders over the entire world? What's going on here? God, being a God of love, is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on how he treats you. God in his nature is love. And this is a common misconception. I'll give you an example, a very helpful book, by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. He, tell, he tells a story about having coffee with a, a very religious man in Paris, and he's sitting down, this man is of African descent, and he's having coffee with him, and he's talking about and the man's like, you know, I love the Lord, and I was raised in a Christian home, and all this stuff, and then he just kind of mentions that on the weekends, he's a married guy, he visits the prostitutes. And D.A. Carson's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just told me about all this I love God, Christian home stuff, What's up with this adultery you be doing? And he said, oh, that, that, that's fine. Because God will forgive me. It's his job. It's his job. We think God is this cosmic grandpa that just pats you on the head and hands out candy. He's the big Oprah in the sky. You get forgiveness, and you get forgiveness, and you get forgiveness. <laughs> And it it costs you nothing. It's meaningless. You can do whatever you want. It's his job to forgive you. That's not the God of the Bible. When it says God is love, it's saying before you existed, God was love. If he didn't love you, he would still be loved. For eternity, he will be loved. God chooses to manifest his love, 1 John 4, 9 says, in sending his son. He can still crush you and be loved. And so we should have some respect for the king. We should realize this is God we're dealing with. The king of the universe. People running around afraid of the mob and afraid of this and that. But you talking about God Almighty. Yeah. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Yeah. The cross is a picture of the holiness and the might of God married to his grace. Yeah. But you can't take the grace and forget the holiness. Yeah. Jesus intervened. When the wrath of God was coming after you and coming after me because we were enemies of the state, yes. traitors against him, deserving to be cast out. The footstool is coming, but he's giving you grace, giving you time. What are you going to do with that time? Well, you say, well, he's, he's just love. He'll take care of it. Will you recognize that we got to bend the knee to the king? Because he shows grace, but he will crush his enemies. David responds to this after seeing this conversation in verse 2. He says, the Lord will extend. He's, He's talking to the my Lord. He says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. What he's saying is, I recognize, my Lord, that Yahweh will extend your scepter. That the the, the scepter, the headquarters of the rule will be in Zion, the the New Jerusalem, but it will extend over the whole earth. The whole universe will be ruled. And and David celebrates this. But notice the second part of that verse is rule over your surrounding enemies. What that means is that we're going to have some enemies because the king's enemies are our enemies. Yeah. It's impossible if you're a bride to have somebody hate your husband and not be your enemy too. That's right, you <laughs> Right? And so when he says rule over your surrounding enemies, David is also recognizing that means I got some surrounding enemies. Yeah. But I, I love this because it reminds me of a scene in Acts where Stephen, the church is growing and people are coming to the Lord and Stephen is appointed as a deacon and he's going through Jerusalem and he's doing ministry. And, and the, 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 those who are opposing the faith, they can't even contend with him. This brother is bad. And so what they do, they say, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to find a way to take him out. And so they drag him in and they have the sham trial. And at the end of the trial, they say, we are going to stone you. You are committing blasphemy and we are going to get rid of you. So they grab this man and they, they take him out outside the walls of Jerusalem. And they, they, they push him down on his knees. And he looks to his left and he sees men holding rocks to crush his skull in. He looks in front of him and he sees another man holding rocks to crush his skull in. He looks to the right and there's another one ready to kill him. He looks behind him and there's another one ready to kill him. All around him are surrounding enemies. But what does he do? I think he remembers this Psalm where it says rule over. And he says, I'm gonna look up. I'm gonna look up. And he raises his eyes. And he says "I look up and I see one. I see heaven open. And I see one sitting there at the right hand of God. And he is beautiful and mighty. You might have some surrounding enemies, but remember your king rules over. Don't look to your right. Don't look to your left. Don't look in front or behind. Look up and see your king. Look up and behold him. Look up and know that even in the midst of your enemies, he rules over. No one is greater than him. You can have confidence surrounded by your enemies. Because this one rules over the surrounding enemy continues in verse 3, and it says, your people will volunteer on your day of battle. Beautiful language. What it points to is this third point that this king will have a loving relationship with his people, not just his subjects, not just his servants, but but his people. It goes on, it says, in your in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, The dew of your youth belongs to you. The second part of this verse is is, is a bit debated as to what this means. What does it mean about holy splendor, womb of the dawn? What's going on here? It could mean that it's referring to the eternality of this king, that his youth proceeds from before the womb of the dawn, before time itself began. But I think part A of this verse helps us understand what's going on here. Because notice it says your people will volunteer on your day of battle. And in this culture, at times of war, what would happen is they would gather on the hills. We still do this today, you want, you want the high ground, right? Yeah. And so they would, the, the army of the, of the, of the king would, would gather on the high ground. And the time when they would muster to get ready to fight the battle would be right before dawn. Because you want to start when the sun comes up so that you can have all day to fight, right? And so they would, before it was, while it's dark outside, the soldiers would grab their shields and grab their, their spears and put their swords on and put their breastplates on and put their helmets on and they would stand and the sun would rise up over the hills and the light would hit the shields and the spears and all the metal and they would glitter and they would, they would glow and, and they would be in, arrayed in splendor. I think this imagery is what's being picked up here. And what it's saying is, I think, pointing to what God is going to do in Revelations. Turn with me me there for a little bit. And keep in mind when it says your people will volunteer. Revelation chapter 19, John writes this. He says, I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. That's our king. His eyes were like fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. Look at this verse. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. It says in chapter, and verse three, your people will volunteer on your day of battle. That day of battle is forecasting, foreshadowing this day of the Lord that we just read about. And I think what's going to happen is God the Son He's going to be sitting on his throne and God the Father is going to lean over and say, son, it's the day. And Jesus is going to step off his throne and he's going to call his horse. He's going to get on his horse. He's going to look around at all the billions of people he's saved throughout history. And he's going to say, it's that day. Who's coming with me? It's that day. It's time to wreck shop. Anybody, any volunteers in the house. And I'm going to be in that number. And I'm going to be in the throng. And I'm going to say, Lord, I see the nail prints on your hands. I see the nail prints on your feet. I see the, the marks on the crown of thorns. You don't have to command me. I'm a volunteer. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. I don't want heaven if you're not here, Lord. I don't want heaven if you're not here. I'm going with you. His people will volunteer. Any volunteers in the house? Anybody ready to go with Jesus? Wherever he calls you. He been too good. Ain't nobody died for you but him. His people will volunteer on his day. But it reminds me, lest you think he needs you to fight. It reminds me of a scene in Judges where God calls Gideon. And he says, Gideon, I want you to go and and fight these Midianites. And Gideon gets 30,000 men to come out and they got their spears and they're ready to fight. And God says, that's too many. And so he separates them out and it's down to 10,000. And God's, no, 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 that's still too many because they might get glory. And so he narrows it down to 300. And you might think 300 against thousands, that's enough. But you know what he does? He says, this army of 300 against thousands, I want you to give them a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other. But they have no weapons. And what do they say on the day of battle? They say, for the Lord, for the Lord, for the Lord. And he wins the battle. It's not your battle. You might volunteer, but you ain't doing no fighting. It's Jesus who's gonna fight. It's him who's gonna conquer. It's him who's gonna reign. You can volunteer, but you're just there to worship and see him in his beauty, see him in his power as he sets up his kingdom. But his people volunteer on the day of his battle. And even, even your desire to volunteer, you can't take credit for. It says, in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, which I think means before time itself, the dew of your youth, dew referring to how many people there are, Belongs to you. So before you even existed, you belonged to him. From eternity past as a good dad, God the Father had picked out a bride for his son. You belonged to him even before you volunteered. You belong to him. He has this love relationship with you. Even, even the desire to follow him was foreordained. Yes. Wow. You can't take any credit. No. Yeah. Not for fighting, not even for volunteering. He gets all the glory. But then he continues in verse 4. It says, The Lord, Yahweh again, has sworn an oath and will not take it back. I might promise something, but I might fail because I'm just a man. But when Yahweh says something, it's going to happen. And so this verse is saying, the Lord himself has said something, and he wants you to know it so sure that he's going to swear on it. And he swears by himself, because there's nothing greater than him, Hebrews says. But What does he swear? What does he say that he will not take back? Speaking again to this king. He says, you are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. That leads me to my fourth point. Jesus, our king, that we want to get to know, he is our savior and our mediator. Where do I get that from? You see, priest is another word that we're not familiar with. We don't have priests. But in their culture, priests were common. And this is not the first time where we see a priest talked about or seeing Yahweh call out a priest. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 28. We'll read in that passage the call of Aaron and his sons, where the God sets up, Yahweh sets up a priesthood. And we can get from this some 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 nuggets for what it means to be a priest. In verse 1, he says to Moses, Have your brother Aaron with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priest. That from means that he's separating out Aaron from among the people. He's separating these people from the Israelites. And he's saying, what happens? They go from here and to serve me. Priests, one of the first definitions of priests is that they are consecrated to serve the Lord. Service to God is a key element of what it means to be a priest. And so when he says to this divine king, he's saying, you are my servant. You are holy to me, consecrated to me. But that's not all that a priest does. If you keep reading in chapter 28 of Exodus, as he's establishing the Levitical priesthood, and you get down to verse 38, or starting in verse 36 actually, it he says, he says to Moses again, you are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it like the engraving of a seal, holy to the Lord. In verse 37, this, 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 this stamp saying holy to the Lord is put right on Aaron's forehead. That's speaking to that consecration again. But then in verse 38 it says, It, being the medallion, will be on Aaron's forehead so that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as all their holy gifts. It is always to be on his forehead so that they may find acceptance with the Lord. The second part of being a priest that God is saying to this divine king, he's saying, you're going to mediate between me and a sinful people because there is no need for a priest unless there is sin. There is need for someone to, 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 to go between. The priests were like middlemen. They brought the sin and the guilt and said, please forgive. And they took from God forgiveness, and they brought it back to the people. They would sprinkle blood on them representing the forgiveness. And so we have the consecration, the service to God, and also this sense of mediation. And so that is what he says when you are a priest. He's saying these two things to him. But you see, the Levitical priesthood, or any priest, always failed you might find a a really good one and they might not because the priests weren't just about spiritual things if you were having conflict with your brother you went to the priest and they would judge if you were sick in your body you went to the priest and they would even produce medicine for you and pray for you you can see this is when hannah in first samuel is struggling where did she go to the priest to the altar to receive help So the priest was was more than just somebody that that, that killed animals. They were a source of of refuge and guidance and wisdom. But they always failed. They they died or they grew corrupt, as Eli himself was. And so what God says to this priest, he says, you are a priest forever. A priest forever. See, You don't know when to shout. Because here it is, right? We're talking about one that mediates. You don't get it. (laughs) You deserve to die like the animals. You deserve to be condemned. But there is one that stands in between, and he will never stop interceding for us. He will never stop mediating for us. He will never, ever, ever stop being a source of refuge. If you need some sustenance, you can come to him. He's there forever. you need some help, you can come to him. He's there forever. He will never fail. A priest forever that you have access to. He's my priest, my king. I need some help. I can say, Lord, my priest, would you pray for me? I've sinned today. And he'll say, my son, receive my forgiveness. He mediates. I can't out his priestliness. If I'm lacking in wisdom, I come and I say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do. And he says, my son, I, I'll give you wisdom. And I can't have too much foolishness to overcome his wisdom. He's a, a priest forever. There will never come a day when I go to my king and go to my priest and I don't receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. We have a priest forever. That's good news. That's great news. You don't have to worry. You have a priest forever. What else does he say to him? He says, you are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Now this is a really interesting thing that he says here. And Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 gives us a lot of details here. But I I think it's really helpful to to look at where does Melchizedek even come on the scene. And So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. And we can see a little bit about what God is saying here about this pattern of Melchizedek. See, let me give you some context. So what happens is Abram, who's a servant of God, he has a nephew. And this nephew, you know how sometimes you got some young people in your life, they don't know what they're doing? (laughs) That was Lot. So Lot he moves, of all places, right into the heart of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Why are you going to do that? But anyway, so he's sitting in Sodom. He's chilling, you know, trying to keep it together with the sin all around him. And what happens, by the way, don't do that. (laughs) It's a little aside. A little lesson learned there. Watch who you're hanging out with. So these kings come through, right, and they they conquer Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, they capture Abram and all his family and his livestock and his wife and daughters, everybody's gone. And Abram's out by the Oaks of Mamre and this person runs up and says, Abram, Abram, Abram. Oh my gosh. Lot and his family, they've been taken, they've been captured. What are we going to do? And Abram said, oh man, that fool boy, I got to go save him. <laughs> so Abram, he gets, he gets his guys together, 318 of them. And they go, they go overnight and they sneak up on these kings and they defeat them. Right? And so they they capture Abraham, or they they save Lot and his wife and his daughters, and everybody that was there, they get saved, as well as the people of of Sodom. But this happened overnight. And so the next morning, they're traveling back to the Oaks of Mamre where he lives. And you you can see this scene that they have they ran to catch these kings. Then they fought them at nighttime when they should have been sleeping. And now they're Maybe helping little girls, or they're helping older people trying to get back home, and so they're tired, right? And that, so that, that's the context of, of what happens here. And so in verse 17 it says, after Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, those are the guys he crushed and defeated, right? The king of Sodom, two kings show up to 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 to, to welcome Abram back. The king of Sodom comes out first. He says he went out to meet him in the Shaveh Valley. That is the King's Valley. But another king shows up, not just the king of Sodom, because the king of Sodom is, oh, you you didn't save my people, right? He's grateful. Melchizedek shows up, even though he wasn't even part of this whole situation. He says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, which means king of peace, and his name means king of righteousness, he brought out bread and wine. Why did he do that? Because what he's doing is he's saying, they are hungry, they are thirsty. And so he's bringing out bread, he's bringing out wine from his own resources to help Abram and his tired men and Lot's family, and so he helps them, right? And then he blesses Abram. He says he blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, because Melchizedek was a priest of God, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who was handed over your enemies to you. And Abram is so grateful, right, after having been tired and, and fought all night, maybe he's got some cuts and bruises. He says, oh, I'm, so, I'm so, so grateful to you for helping me out. He says he gave him a tenth of everything. And so what's unique about this story and even the role and person of Melchizedek is that he's the only one in Scripture that has the combination of both being a priest, that servant mediator, and being a king, the one who gives direction and order and, and then the source of power. Right? So Melchizedek, the the prince of peace and the prince of righteousness, is a foreshadowing of the one who would to come that says, I'm going to here help you in your time of need. Because he helps, who does he help? Abram, God's servant. Now, when God says, You are a priest forever after the pattern of Melchizedek, you should remember the bread and the wine. Because Abram came and he was tired, and he was weary. He'd been fighting a battle. And this prince of Salem of peace, this king of righteousness, he comes out and he meets his need. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Because he would do more. Because Abram, he got some bread. He got some wine. But you know what happened a couple days later? He's hungry and thirsty again. Melchizedek could only help his physical need. Even though he was a priest, he couldn't deal with his fundamental hunger. Yeah, that's good. He couldn't deal with his fundamental thirst, but Jesus comes and on the night when he was about to be betrayed, he said, here is bread yeah. and here is wine, yeah. but I'm not just feeding your body. I'm not just quenching your thirst. I'm dealing with what you fundamentally need. I'm going to give you my body to pay your sin debt. Here's my blood to usher in the new covenant. He's a priest forever after the pattern of Melchizedek. You might have some good authority in your life. They might be able to help you when you're struggling. You got some debts they got to pay off. They can give you some money, pay that off. Maybe you, you, you need a job and they can help you find a job. Maybe you're, you're struggling with your brother and they can mediate between you. But I'm here to tell you that the one who's greater than Melchizedek can do all that and more. Yeah. Because no human authority, no pastor, no president, no priest, nobody can deal with your debt towards God. Yeah. Nobody can deal with the sickness of sin. Nobody can create a new role for you where God looks at you and says, your job is now to be my beloved. Only Jesus, the priest forever, after the pattern of Melchizedek, can deal fundamentally with our greatest need. He redeems authority. He shows us what it looks like. And so I don't know what what your struggles have been. Maybe it was your dad or maybe it was a pastor or a really evil boss. But I'm telling you that God wants you to get to know your king. Get to know your, your new husband. Draw near to him and say, would you wash me of all the pains of being harmed and hurt? Help me to submit to you. Because you're a good priest. You're a good king. And I have you forever. Let us pray. My father, I thank you for your son. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your son. My priest and my king, thank you that I have him forever. Thank you that before the womb of the dawn, I belonged to him. Thank you that he came not to crush me as I deserved, but to offer his body as the bread, his blood as the wine, so that I might volunteer to follow him anywhere. Would we, O Lord, love our King, worship our King, May it be our great honor to bend the knee to him, not to be forced, but freely offering ourselves. Amen.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally nationally and internationally you can go to epiphanyfellowship.org go under give and consider donating thank you take care see you next week